And they always say, you know, a good answer leads to a hundred more questions. From the Museum of Science in Boston, this is Pulsar, a podcast where we dive for answers to the pointiest questions we've ever gotten from our visitors. I'm your host, Eric, and one of the most fascinating creatures in nature is the narwhal, with its extremely long, spiraling tusk. Our museum visitors want to know, what is it for? For an answer, I turn to Dr. Martin Nuia, a marine mammal odontologist and narwhal expert, as well as a practicing dentist and part-time lecturer at Harvard University. Dr. Nuya, thank you so much for joining me on Pulsar today. Pleasure to be here, Eric. Can you give us a little bit of background on the narwhal, where it's found, and just kind of an intro to this amazing tusk for people who might not be familiar with it? Sure. So narwhal is a medium-sized whale, roughly about 15 feet. It really has a very defined habitat. You know, really narwhal don't go below the Arctic Circle unless something is up, you know, in their environment. They're cold water adapted. But uh, they have very unusual features. They're the deepest diving of all Arctic marine mammals and one of the deepest diving of all whales. The tusk can extend up to eight or nine feet. So it is literally over half the length of the body. It's an extraordinary tusk. It's also marked by the fact that it's the only straight tusk in nature. It's the only spiraled tusk in nature. And I always tell people, you know, as, as scientists, we're always reluctant to use the words only or, you know, most extreme. Narwhal, you can be very comfortable with all those labels. So your story is really great. I always enjoy hearing about how someone got their start in researching any given topic. So coming to the mystery of the narwhal tusk through being a dentist, how does that happen? Kind of a circuitous pathway, actually. I began my interest both in dentistry and also anthropology almost simultaneously. So I did um, research fellowships at the Smithsonian. And I became interested in a field called dental anthropology, which is really studying the teeth of humans. And I became interested as I was looking at humans with different animal models and naturally included things like elephants and the obvious walrus and others. And then when I came across narwhal, I got to tell you, I looked at this thing and I said, this is an interesting puzzle. And yeah, and it's one that not a lot of people, I think, know right off the bat. I mean, if you've heard of a narwhal, you might not know that they're tusk is actually a tooth. You're right. You know, not only do people not know about the narwhal, but interestingly enough, when you ask many adults about this animal, they don't even know it's on the planet with us. I think more kids know about the narwhal now because it's it's kind of the new awesome animal, right? So um, kids are very well informed about it and adults still to this day just go, oh, I didn't know that was even here with us. And so one of the first things that you did when you were looking to learn more about narwhals was to look at populations that have been living near them for a long time to go and talk to indigenous people who have them kind of as part of their culture. So what was that like to be able to talk with people who have stories and legends and the scientific knowledge going back for hundreds, thousands of years? So interestingly, it started with a conversation with a mentor of mine at the Smithsonian, a guy by the name of Jim Mead, who's kind of a hallmark figure in terms of whale biology. And he told me something very early on in the conversations that you'll get most of your insights from the Inuit people. And I took that to heart. And indeed, you're correct. So when I did have the conversations up there, the first few times I went, it became very apparent to me this is where the knowledge was held. And certainly I could bring science to the picture, but it was with the backdrop of Inuit knowledge. 
So what kinds of things did you learn from those, those stories, that knowledge? What kind of things like set you on the right track to unraveling this mystery? So all kinds of things. You know, when you think about narwhal behavior, for example, most of us as scientists, if we go up there, we're going for a very limited period of time, right? About three, four weeks, maybe. These are folks that are living with this animal all year round. They are very careful observers of nature. So they understood the behavioral things, uh, like older males, for example, leading a large group, uh, adolescent males kind of being scouts on the outside, females and calves coming last, you know, in terms of a, a large migrating group. They also understood where the narwhal were. So if you weren't savvy enough to have a good Inuit hunter who could assist the process, you might go up there, as many people do, and never see a whale. The Inuit were key collaborators right from the beginning. And I must say, even the expedition teams I worked with, with Fisheries and Oceans Canada, half our team were Inuit. They're not only skilled at the knowledge part, but also skilled with handling the whale. They know them anatomically. They dissected them multiple times from every aspect of anatomy, physiology, behavior, ecology, environment. The Inuit are really the resource. And I'll just give you one example. In my work with the tusk, for example, in looking at how, let's say, an encyclopedia of marine mammals defines narwhal or looks at their teeth, you're basically going to see just very broad categories like male with a tusk, female without a tusk. You know, you don't see all the other examples that are out there. And the Inuit know all the different expressions of this tusk because the expression itself is completely odd. You know, you can have males with a tusk, you can have males with two tusks, you can have males with no tusk, you can have females who often don't have a tusk, but can have a tusk. When they do have a tusk, it's completely different. And the Inuit have this kind of knowledge. Oh, that's fascinating. So our question today, why do narwhals have tusks? I've been asked this for many years, a decade or more ago, there was no clear answer with good evidence. Can you talk about some of the different explanations that have been put forth for the narwhal tusk? So people were, you know, hypothesizing all kinds of things, uh, anything from spearing fish, breaking ice. So all these theories were put out there with a lot of conjecture because no one really knew. You know, then the idea was, well, if you spear something, well, how are you going to get it off, you know, or how are you going to eat it, right? Or if you do poke holes in the ice, what happens if you get your tusk lodged in it? The mere fact of this tusk even existing on the planet was a complete enigma to me. I mean, it broke every property of evolution and anatomy and physiology that I ever learned in dental school. So naturally, this was a mystery I thought, you know, this, this could get my attention, right? So what is our answer for today? Why do narwhals have tusks? Our answer today is that it's a sensory organ. Without a doubt, this is the primary function of the tusk. It has gone through such extreme measures of anatomy and physiology to accomplish sensory function that no matter what other functions you may attach, that is the primary one. We thought the most significant way to test that would be to use a variable that would be important for the whale to detect. And we selected salinity. So how much salt is in the water? Why is that so important to detect if you are a whale? These are mammals, so they need to breathe, right? So they need to get to that surface. They need to breathe before they go back down. But yet when the summertime comes, 
all the great food is further north. And like us, they want good food, right? You want the buffet. So they're going up in the summertime, going into these inlets that are also very deep because they're a deep diving whale. They're getting their buffet. They have access to all the great foods. But then in the fall, they need to know when to get out of those inlets because those are going to be entirely frozen. And if they get frozen and they get trapped, which occasionally can happen with fast ice formation, then they can lose their life because they need to get through that surface to breathe again. Now, let's think about what causes the ice formation and what happens. Because when ice forms, it is pulling out the freshwater components of the seawater, right? But leaving behind a higher gradient of salt, right? Because it's pulling the freshwater out. These whales can detect that. They know when that's happening. And that's a trigger for them to say, we got to get out of town here. And we only have so much time to do it in. So that's a valuable asset to have as a whale. And then the argument could come, well, why don't females have it? And, you know, keep in mind, again, these are mammals. These are smart creatures. They can share information. You know, this isn't about one species having something that another part of the subspecies doesn't have. It's more about cooperative understanding. But what we discovered was because of the expression, you know, some males have it, some males don't. Then we have to think from an evolutionary standpoint, what's going on? Is this a is this a trait coming in or is this a trait being faded out? You know, because we're only looking at at observations of nature within a blink of an eye, right? We don't know how something is evolving. Right. We're always looking at a snapshot. Exactly. And and that snapshot is just one place on the timeline where we get some idea of what is happening. And we benefit greatly by having a larger picture of that. But unfortunately, Narwhal doesn't give us that. So there's not a whole lot of evolutionary background for Narwhal to get to the planet. You know, there's there's a few other species, Denobola. There's a creature called Odebenacetops. And these were living off the coast of Peru. They were in warmer weather climates, but have very similar kind of tusks. But Narwhal is completely... Uh, unusual, unique, individual, extraordinary, uh, any superlative you want to put on there. All right, so to wrap up, is the issue of the narwhal tusk something that's now a case closed, or is there more to be understood in research? Are you still going up to the Arctic and trying to answer more questions? Definitely more. Um, and I think the place that we're going to find deeper insights is in the field of genetics. I have um, garnered a an incredible team of people that have helped us establish the reference genome for the narwhal. So I always tell people these reference genomes are like the library, right? I mean, if you're going to take out a book, you're coming to our library to do it because we have literally the description of every, you know, gene uh, that the narwhal has. But interestingly enough, with the questions of where this thing came from and why it expresses itself the way it does, will be found by looking at genetics and genes and very specific regulatory mechanisms. What we didn't talk about, you know, there are many aspects to this, but narwhal, for example, have the ability to form 12 other teeth that they genetically silence at birth. So not only do they form this tusk, but something in their genetic DNA says, oh, no, 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 we don't need those 12 teeth to help us chew and bite our food. No, we what we'd rather have is this 
enormous nine foot projection. That's so much better for us. And so you have to think intrinsically, where are we going with this, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint? Because in many ways, this tusk is a hindrance to the whale. You swim less efficiently. I mean, it's a big thing to wield around. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. And it's also off angle. So if you're trying to swim straight, you know, imagine you're a sailor with a rudder that's about six degrees off and you're trying to stay straight. It takes a lot of physiologic energy for this whale. And think about its deep diving. It can go a mile and a half down. Imagine trying to stay straight on your axis with a tusk that's off, you know, and, and you've only got so much time to breathe and hold your air. But the genetics will also help us understand Arctic adaptation, which is a key other aspect of this, is this whale, we think, from an evolutionary standpoint, came from warmer climates. How did it end up in the Arctic? And how did it adapt in such a way that intuitively, in many ways, makes no sense? You know, why, why, why adapt this way? Um, and so there's a curiosity about whales in general, but narwhale, without question, is the most extraordinary. All right, Dr. Nuria, thank you so much for talking to us all about narwhales and your journey to understanding their awesome tusks. What a pleasure, Eric. On your next visit to the Museum of Science, check out our Arctic Adventure exhibit to learn more about the science that is being done in the northernmost reaches of our planet. And while you're home, watch our Sparks of Science video series to find out how Arctic ice can help us understand climate change. Until next time, keep asking questions.